Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast, etc., 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 etc. I am your ginger host, Mackenzie, and today, as per the usual, I'm joined by the Canadian B. Arthur, the director extraordinaire, the Mistress Anna to the King. Autumn Smith. Yes, well, I am a revolutionary in my own way. Exactly. Hello, hello, everyone. Mackenzie, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. Long time no see. And yeah. I'm excited to see we're back doing our next installment in our Rogers and Hammerstein chronological Whew. exploration of their canon. Mm-hmm. We've only mm-hmm. skipped... State Fair so far. So, Autumn, what are we discussing today? We are discussing something that will make us whistle a happy tune. Mm -hmm. The King and I. That's right. in the shadow we speak not a word (laughs) we'll get into that song yeah so yeah king and i this was a mac pick (laughs) this was one of the ones where autumn and i both looked at each other and said we "We gotta do it we we gotta do it because it's an important rogers and hammerstein show it's a big one so i said well i mean I'll, i'll i'll take a stab at it i'll take a look back at it and i'm happy i did take on that because you know, Autumn, it's like what you said when when we did Miss Saigon. Mm-hmm. It's one of these shows that is a problematic, absolutely. But the music and the songs in it are stunning. It's some very beautiful music by Rodgers and Hammerstein. And yeah. it also, you know, going back in with an open mind and being like, okay, what is it about this show that makes it one of the more popular Rodgers and Hammerstein shows to do? Mm-hmm. And I get it's problematic. I really do. But I also go, I appreciate the message that Raj and Hamster were trying to convey in 1951 about globalism versus isolationism, being accepting of others' differences and finding common ground with those who you may not always see eye to eye with. Mm-hmm. And those are messages that I think are timeless, really. I mean, I mean, the whole relationship <laughs> with Anne and the King is about coming together. And do they agree? That, uh, Heck no. Anna very much is against the king's polyamory. But they do form a relationship and a bond with one another to the point at the end where she goes, Louis, I wish you did know the king. He was a man who was troubled and was difficult and it wasn't perfect, but he was someone who tried. Yeah, yeah. She has a different perspective on him, but 
And it's a journey to get to that perspective. She comes in very much with the British mindset of who are these people? But the fact that like she, the, the, the yeah. Trudeau Longhorn comes in with a shirt on and she kind of poo-poos him saying that he's partially naked, right? But yet by the end, that's just well, not a problem. For the Western value. Exactly. Finishing a Eastern, you know, culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if many people seeing this show would take that deep into it. That's where it becomes extremely problematic. True. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> Once again, it requires a little homework from the audience to do, to dive a little bit deeper. What Rogers and Hammerstein audience is going to go do homework before they go to the theater? Let me tell you, a zero. <laughs> yeah, but you can see that about any audience. What audience is going to see Hairspray is going to go do homework about a zero, audience? a zero. Any audience going to see a musical does zero homework. Mm-hmm. That's wherein the musical as a genre is problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because yeah. they're brilliant. So many musicals are brilliant mm-hmm. and ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. But because it's music, they turn their brains off. Unless it's a song time. So it's, it's hard. Like, mm-hmm. it's when people go to the theater to see a, you know, a so-called straight play. I hate, I hate that. Or a drama. Let's say a drama. Or mm-hmm. even a comedy. Mm-hmm. They their minds are more engaged, I'm gonna say, than when they go to a musical. They turn their brains off. Which pisses me off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but yeah, the king and I. So yeah, so you're going back into it with the open mind of like, okay, what is it about this show? Yeah. And I and I, and I, I mean I did find a new appreciation for it. I I no. did find there's something more to it than just oh, it's that one. I found a new appreciation for components of it. Like upon mm-hmm. reading about it, I'm like, oh, this, oh, okay. Now, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I came to it mainly through the music. That was kind of my first experiences. I can't remember where, but I know from a young age, I, I've known the song Getting to Know You. That Ooh. song, I've known that way back. Like that is just one I feel like I've grown up knowing. I did have the song Shall We Dance. That song was on my Broadway classic CD growing up. So that was another one that I knew really well. I do remember, though, that in 1999, my dad did write the cartoon version of The King and I. And and, and I remember watching that. There's a cartoon version. Oh, Lord, help me. Uh, And I went back and watched clips of it this week to prep, and I was like, God, this is terrible. It definitely doesn't capture the Roger Neighbors time magic. Yeah, but yeah, so I remember seeing that. And then it wasn't until I was at York that I saw the 1956 film version because being mm. Mac, I bought the DVD Rogers and Hammerstein movie box set. <laughs> so I had them all in there. And so during one of my Friday night marathons between my dawn duty shifts, I put on this movie. And you're like, okay, let's see what this one is. And I was like, oh, King and I, okay, got it. And then I've never seen it live though, but I did see the most recent pro shot version that was done mm. at least in the cineplex of the revival starring Ken Watanabe as the king and, Aunt, and Kelly O'Hara as Kelly Anna. Yeah. Love Kelly O'Hara. Great. I do. She's, fabulous. she's done a lot of Rogers and Hammerstein. Like she's basically worked her way through. Yeah. She's, she's doing it like we are. Yeah. Yeah. Like, she will. I guarantee you, she either end up playing the Baroness or the mother Abbas and sound of music at some point. Oh, because she's too old for Maria. Yeah, yeah, she's too old for Maria, but she definitely could play. She definitely could be Mother Abbas. Mm, delicious. Because yeah, she's done Julie Jordan. Yeah, she's done 
Anna. She's done Nellie Forbush. Yep. I don't think she's, I, I mean, she, at this point, she'll have to play Aunt Ella in Oklahoma. Because <laughs> he, he's too old to play Lori. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she can but she can do Aunt Ella and she can do a Sunday music. And then she's done the, the canon of Rogers Name. Then the canon. Mm-hmm. She's an RNH like uh groupie. That, yeah, exactly. Well, she I has like the right that. voice for her for, for their canon. Well, like, yeah. They write very lyrical yeah. sopranos. Yeah. Like, that's their kind of, of big thing for, for females is having that lyrical soprano voice. That's, that's right. why her and Audra McDonald are perfect for that canon. And, and do it so well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. So then, for you, Autumn, how did you come to this show? Well, Mackenzie Horner. <laughs> Honey, we were talking about appropriation and my turn as Rosie, Rosie. Alvarez and Bye Bye Birdie. This mm-hmm. one, all new level, but I was younger, <laughs> even still. I was, what, 13 mm-hmm. when I got cast as a royal dancer one mm-hmm. so i had you know the uh stereotypical painted face and then to top it all off i was the dancer who played uncle thomas <laughs> in uncle tom's cabin so it was appropriation squared yes but for uncle tom you wore a mask <laughs> i was 13 i was 13 yeah. i had no idea what year would that have been? 1986. Yeah. And your uh, mom was in that production too, wasn't she? Yeah. No, yeah, she was one of the royal wives. <laughs> you go, Mo. <laughs> you go, Mo. Yeah, she also had the the whole very poorly painted face. Friends, you can't you can't judge me because we were not having these conversations at the time. And I judge myself significantly for it. And I would never do that now. Never mm-hmm. horrifying, and I didn't know. Like no, no one was having that conversation. We forget how current this conversation is, and that to me is frightening. But then you look at it in context to like the civil rights movement, yeah, and that's only been in the last fifty, sixty years. Mm-hmm. What yeah. the fuck is that? Yeah, like it doesn't seem like we've moved mountains. But we've moved mountains to where we are now from yes. where we were. In a and we still have more moving to go. Yeah. Oh, leagues. But imagine where we can be in another 10, 20. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a very different time. Mm-hmm. But it's shifting. It's evolving. Just like I have evolved in my... <laughs> yes. You, you evolved... In your character casting choices. Ah, yes. Most definitely. Most definitely. Love it. Love it. Okay. Well, for those people who don't know what The King and I is about, let me give you a plot description. Uh, so, an hour. Yeah. <laughs> actually, actually, this is actually one of the shorter parts. Huh. Um, so this musical is based... So yeah, I'll start by saying this. This musical is basically the more problematic and more complex version of The Sound of Music. When you break it down. Yeah, in a way. Yeah. It's about a nanny who comes into a large family, or a governess comes into a large family, changes the dad for the better, you know, just King and I has a little bit more complex 
social issues going on than Nazis bad, Aust- uh, Maria and Captain Good. Um, but that's what I'm thinking. Um, anyway, so the musical is based on Margaret Landon's novel, Anna and the King of Siam, published in 1944, which is in turn derived from the memoirs of Anna Loudens, who is the, who was the governess of the children of the uh, of King Munkut, King Munkut of Siam in the early 1860s. The musical's main plot centers around the experiences of Anna, a British schoolteacher who is hired as part of the king's drive to modernize his country. The musical begins with the recently widowed Anna arriving in Siam with her son Louis. The piece then mainly focuses on the conflict between Anna and the king. As per usual, Rogers and Hammerstein's formula, there is a secondary uh, couple. This time it is between Tuptim, a slave brought from Burma to be one of the king's junior wives, and Lunta, a Burmese scholar and envoy. Mm. The musical uh, accumulates with the British sending an envoy to Bangkok to evaluate the situation and to begin work on a future alliance between Siam and Britain. Uh, During the visit, Anna is reacquainted with one of her old flames, Sir Edward, who tries to convince Anna to return to England with him, but Anna declines. Tuptim leads the other wives and children in a presentation of Small House of Uncle Thomas. The king is distracted and upset by this presentation because of Tuptim's rebellious message of anti-slavery. But the British are impressed and Tuptim and Lunta make an escape together. Meanwhile, in gratitude for Anna's hard work and making the meeting a success, the king presents Anna with a ring and she teaches him to dance like the British were. Thus, we get the iconic number, Shall We Dance? The moment is broken when Tuptim is brought before the king after being caught in her escape. Uh, the, and, the, and then they're also informed that the search for Lunta is ongoing. The king resolves to punish Tuptim, though she denies that she and Lunta were lovers. Anna tries to dissuade the king, but he is determined to prove his dominance and that he is not overly influenced or controlled by Anna and the West. To prove this point, the king takes the whip himself but he finds he cannot lash Tuptim due to Anna's pleads and and, and unwavering gaze. The king then makes a hurried exit. A message then arrives that Lunta has been found dead. Tuptim is dragged off and she swears to kill herself. It is implied that she has completed suicide because she does not appear again in the show. Anna returns the ring to the king's chief advisor, the Kudalongkorn, and they express their wish that she had never come to Siam. A time jump occurs of several months, and Anna is preparing to leave when she receives word from Prince Chunalongkorn that the king is dying and that he wishes to see her. Anna hurries to the king's bedside and they reconcile. The king persuades her to take back the ring and to stay and assist the next king, Chunalongkorn. As the king dies, he has Chunalongkorn dictate his first rulings as king. Chunalongkorn then decrees the end of the custom of kowtowing that Anna hated so much. <clears throat> the king accepts this and then quietly passes away as with Anna kneeling and kissing his hand. That's the point. Autumn, who we got yeah. left on creative teams since we've covered a majority of them at this point? Well, Rogers and Hammerstein. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have we talked about them now? Oklahoma. We've Carousel. done Carousel. 
South wisdom, Pacific. South Pacific. And now four. This is our fourth. So, of course, Rogers and Hammerstein, we've talked ad nauseum about them at this point because this is number four. They're kind of like the Sondheim of their time. Very exciting. Yes. Da, da, da. They were the they were the this uh the teachers of Sondheim. It's true. Well, yeah, Hammerstein. It's true. Hammerstein. Yes. Hammerstein. And here's a and here's a note for you that raised the king and I and Sondheim. So when Oscar Hammerstein was dying of stomach cancer, he Awful. yeah. So so he had like a last supper with his family and friends, and Sondheim was there because he was a family friend, right? He was basically oh. an adopted son to them, and. Yeah. Hammerstein and Hammerstein wrote on because because he get everybody a headshot, like a nice professionally done headshot for them to keep. And so Sondheim actually asked Hammerstein to assign it. And so on the note that he put on there, he put the lyrics from The King and I that Anna says to her students, which is, it's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought that if you become a teacher, by your pupils, you'll be taught. As a teacher, I've been learning. And you'll forgive me if I boast. And I've now become an expert on the subject I like most. Getting to know you. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Don't. That almost made me cry. Stop it. <laughs> that oh. is what he wrote to Sondheim. It is a beautiful testament to teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, the, the idea that learning is cyclical mm -hmm. and that it's not a dictatorship. Anna Leonowens, yes. that she was learning about them as much as she was teaching them. Yeah. And, that, and, that, and, and I think that's one of the messages of King and I is that learning and growing, right? Like, and like changing. And changing. Change is inevitable. Mm. The world is changing every single yes. moment that we are alive. It's a puzzlement. Yeah. <laughs> a puzzlement, indeed. Yes. Because a lot of us just want to stay. Yeah. Lock, stock, yeah. safer. It's way mm -hmm. safer, right? Which is, mm -hmm. we talked a lot about that before, but yes. it's very relevant in this one. Mm -hmm. It is. Extremely relevant. So we've got we've got that. Now the original source material, we're gonna go back to this idea because I love it. Yeah, yeah, huh. The um original source material was written by Margaret Landon, mm -hmm. who was an American uh writer known for Anna and the King of Siam, which was her best selling 1944 novel. So it was about the life and times of Anna Leon Owens, which eventually sold over a million copies. It was translated into more than 20 languages. And then, of course, it was turned into this wonderful musical. She also wrote a later work called Never Dies the Dream, which appeared mm. in 1949. So that's a little bit about her and the, the source material. I just want to do like a little note other than, uh, you know, uh, Maggie there. The, this was directed by John William Van Druten. Now, mm -hmm. you might remember this fellow, this chap, from our time in Cabaret Land. I was about to say, his name sounds really familiar. He was an English playwright, theater director. He began his career in London, then moved to America, 
known for his plays of witty and urbane observations of contemporary life and society. He was one of the more successful playwrights of the 1930s in London and did works such as Diversion, After All, London Wall, uh, There's Always Juliet, Somebody Knows, The Distaff Side, and Flowers of the Forest. Um, he also did Behold We Live with Gertrude Lawrence. So we'll come back to that, right? Indeed. Uh-huh. Uh, so he later emigrated to America where he wrote Leave Her to Heaven, a drama set in London and Westcliff on Sea, which was shortly followed by major successes with Old Acquaintance, uh, The Voice of the Turtle, which tur- was turned into a film with Ronald Reagan. Ha, uh, I, know. I know. His 1951 play, I Am a Camera, together with Christopher Isherwood's short stories, Goodbye to Berlin, form the basis of Joe Masteroff's book for the musical Cabaret. Okay. Uh, when I Am Camera opened on Broadway in 1951, the New York Times drama critic wrote a famous three-word review. Me, no Leica. Ah, ah, ah. Leica, like L-E-I-C-A, like the Leica camera brand. Love that. Hilarious. He had a relationship with Carter Lodge. Mm-hmm. And then he got roped into like doing the show uh, as a director. Mm-hmm. Like, how weird is that? We'll get into but why that happened. Gertrude Lawrence and was the reason why it happened. So, spoiler just, alert. Uh, I don't think this guy might be able to do it. He's, he's a history buff. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, never directed before, but uh, just give it to him. And of course, our good friends, Jerome Robbins. Yes. Choreographed the work. Mm-hmm. In fact, his March of the, what is it? March of the. March of the Siamese Children. March of the Siamese Children was lauded as being one of the most amazing things anyone's ever seen. Yes. So he was originally scheduled just to do the Uncle Tom's Cabin work. Yes. It's interesting. Yes. I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't bring in someone who actually knew this culture but that's okay I'm not gonna... it's 1951 autumn they weren't thinking that way i'm gonna judge 1951 trust me just wait till you hear some of their casting ideas oh oh i can believe it i can believe it mm-hmm. that's uh that's me done bye all right okay all right autumn here we go this is where i would bulk of my notes gets caught all right here we go this here we go very deep production history that that is okay. Right. So, <clears throat> when last we left, or Roger and Hammerstein, they mm-hmm. had just had their big success with South Pacific. Oh, yes. Valley for, High. Valley High, baby. Valley High. For their fifth musical, because, because we skipped Allegro. That was their other one that they did. That mm-hmm. Don't even talk about that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not overly memorable. Anyway, so for their fifth musical, the journey to the source material took some time. The process began when Agent Fanny Holtzman was looking for a new vehicle for her client, British British actress Gertrude Lawrence, whose work had stalled. Uh, She was sent the 1944 Margaret Landon novel, Anna and the King of Siam, uh, and thought this material would be good for Lawrence. Holtzman initially wanted Cole Porter 
to write the score, but he declined. Uh, she was going to approach Noel Coward next, but uh, happened to meet Dorothy Hammerstein, Oscar's wife in Manhattan. Holtzman told Dorothy Hammerstein that she wanted Roger and Hammerstein to create the show for Lawrence and asked her to see that her husband read the book that Holtzman would send over. Uh, back when the book was first published, both wives of, of Roger and Hammerstein, also named Dorothy, both of them, had suggested the book as they were fans of the material. But Raj and Hammerstein both declined the novel as it consisted of episodic vignettes about the daily life in the Siamese court and the occasional descriptions of major historical moments. They found these vignettes repetitive plot-wise with the main idea always being that the king creates a problem and Anna has to attempt to resolve it. It wasn't until Raj and Hammerstein saw the 1946 film adaptation starring Irene Dunn and Rex Harrison as the king that they saw how to string together these separate individual stories. Lastly, they were reluctant to do this project because Lawrence was not a well-trained singer. She had a limited vocal range, which was already diminishing, and she had the habit of singing flat. Mm -hmm. That's all. Yeah, it wasn't until Lawrence committed to remaining uh, in the show un until June 1st, 1953, and waived her star's usual veto rights over cast and direction that Rogers and Hammerstein officially signed on to the project. As the pair began to tackle this piece, their first issue was how to address the challenge of representing Thai speech in music. Rogers did not wish to actually use Thai music, as he felt American audiences might not find it accessible. Instead, he wrote his music featuring open fifths and chords in unusual keys to create the exotic flavor in his music, while still being pleasant to Western ears. Hammerstein. Wait, stop. So uh, already that's incredibly problematic. <laughs> oh, we can't listen to that. That's not, ugh, that's not tangible for a Western audience. Suck it. <laughs> well, that's how they felt. Once again, 1950 here, where we're dealing with a different mindset. I know. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. So. Hammerstein, when tackling how to represent Thai speech, had Rogers convey it through musical sounds from the orchestra. So like musical like notifs that would play. And with the King's style of speech, Hammerstein developed an abrupt, emphatic way of talking, which was mostly free of articles, as are many Eastern languages. The forest full style reflected the King's personality and was maintained even when he sang, especially in his big solo song, A Puzzlement. Hammerstein took most of his plot inspiration from the 1946 film, but he found his way into the piece by first adapting Landon's account of a slave in Siam writing about Abraham Lincoln. This would eventually become the narrated dance, The Small House of Uncle Thomas. The next element to tackle was that the king and Anna couldn't openly express affection or love for one another. This made Hammerstein give the secondary coupling of Tuptim and Lunta many of the traditional love duets and scenes. This choice was a departure from Landon's work as the relationship between Tuptim and a priest you know, that, that, that is in the novel is not romantic. Right. Another major change was having the king die at the end of the musical. Much of the initial scene between Anna and the king was directly translated from Landon's version in the book. When writing for the king, Hammerstein expanded the role 
and wrote the king more sympathetically than he was portrayed in both the novel and in the 46 film version. This is in large part due to the musical omitting the torture and burning at the stake of Lady Tupton and her partner. <laughs> Did that actually happen? In the book and movie, it does. Okay, keep going. So they cut that okay. out. Uh, and then the song Hello, Young Lovers, was the work of five exhausting weeks for Hammerstein as he struggled to translate the intimate moment between Anna and the king's wives. Initially, he thought that Anna would simply tell the wives something about her past and wrote such lyrics as, I was dazzled by the splendor of Calcutta and Bombay, and the celebrities were many, and the parties were very gay. I recall a curry dinner and a certain Major Grey. Uh, but then he decided that Anna should sing a song that would not only expand her, her, uh, her past, uh, but also her motivations for traveling with her son to the, to the court of Siam, but also served to establish the bond between Tupton and lay the groundwork for the conflict that devastates Anna's relationship with the king. The song Western People Funny, sung by the king's chief wife, Lady Tiang, was uh, while dressed in, in Western garb, was inspired by an actual picture of a, of a Thai woman in Western dresses of the period. By July 1950, Hammerstone had developed a fairly solidified draft of the show. In fact, due to Rogers having a back problem, Hammerstone completed most of the musical's book before many of the songs were set to music. When it came to assembling the rest of the creative team, Rogers and Hammerstein first reached out to Joshua Logan and offered him the opportunity to direct and co-author the book. But Logan was jaded from his mistreatment during the South Pacific. He declined uh, the offer, saying that later on it was one of his biggest regrets. Instead, Rogers and Hammerstein offered the directorship to John Van Druten, who had previously directed Lawrence in several plays. Then Joe Mullitzer and Irene uh, Schaefer, who actually Autumn did the costumes for the 1961 version of West Side Story, the Ooh. film version. Yeah, very prolific Oscar and Tony nominated costume designer, was hired as the set and costume designers. The producer, Leland Hayward, was the one who approached Ron Robbins to choreograph for the ballet of The Small House of Uncle Thomas. Rogers was very enthusiastic about the project and created a unique movement style that had dancers flex their feet and hyperextend their fingers to create a look that was not authentically, mm -hmm, that was not authentically Thai, but did evoke exoticisms. So then Robbins first staged The Small House of Uncle Thomas as an intimate performance rather than a large production number. He then requested to choreograph other musical numbers as well, although Rogers and Hammerstein had originally planned little other dancing in the show. They extended certain sections for Robbins, such as the parade of, of the King's children to meet Anna. This moment became the March of the Royal Siamese Children, which would all, which ultimately draw great critical acclaim. wonder why. I, I never understood why that moment is so, like, draws out so much attention. Like, when you watch it, it's just kids marching in and bowing. It's not like they're doing anything special, like, dance-wise. It's probably because it was so many children. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like, how many wives does he have? A lot. <laughs> I think that's probably why, like, this 
the ceremony, right? True. It's kind of like the Von Trapps, which we'll talk about, like yes. this idea of ceremony and 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 tradition. Mm. Tradition, tradition. Mm. Complicated. It is. So when it came to casting the part of the king, which was originally a supporting role to Lawrence's Anna, Roger and Hamilton offered the role to Rex Harrison, who had played the king in the film version. When And then when he declined because he was busy, they went to Noel Coward, as he had also a close relationship with Lawrence. As they oh, well, he and, her, he and Gertrude Lawrence were inseparable. They did... They would. They did the Noel and Gertie thing for a real yes. long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They even offered Noel Coward a chance to direct and star as the king in the show, but he declined oh. that because he didn't want it to star in something that he hadn't written. Um, but anyway, so Noel Coward and and Rex Harrison are out. They then went to Alfred Drake, the original Curly from Oklahoma, to play the part. But due to him having his most recent success starring in Kiss Me, Kate. He made many contractual demands that they were not able to meet. So that was it. So now with time running out and they were like, hey, what do we do? We need somebody. It was Mary Martin, who was starring in South Pacific, that suggested Rogers and Himmerson auditioned her co-star from a 1946 musical film set in China, Leap Song. The actor's name is what? Yul Brenner. You got it. For his audition, Brenner came on stage sat cross-legged with his guitar and Brenner began his audition by hitting his guitar and giving an unearthly yell. And he sang, as Rogers described it, something that sounded heathenish. Autumn's just shaking her head, listeners. But basically right after the audition, Rogers and I are both like, yeah, that's our guy. He's got the look, he's got the voice. He's our, he's our kid. Mm-hmm. He was a sexy, sexy man. Well, you know yes, me. That takes a lot for me to say. It's true. He just exuded like he had this presence. Mm-hmm. And it was intimidating, yet soft. And just, he was incredible. He was so, he, he just exuded an inner power. And it was, he was magnificent. Mm-hmm. Magnificent. Yes. And as Ramesses, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> what an amazing actor. And but he but he was also playful. Yeah. Just he was genius. He was a genius actor that mm-hmm. could play many different notes. And I I, you know, stunning, stunning, stunning in every way. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But here's something for you. So even though they offered him the part, Brenner actually was first reluctant to take the role as he had become an established television director. But his wife, his agent, and Mary Martin finally convinced him to read Hammerstein's working script. And once he did, he was fascinated by the character of the king and was eager to do the project. Oh my God. Do you mm-hmm. imagine if he didn't do it? So the show's budget was $250,000, which in today's money is $2 million Four hundred and ninety thousand dollars. This making it the most expensive Rogers and Hammerstein production to that point. Well, they had to build Siam, didn't they? They did. Shortly before rehearsals began in January 1951, Rogers had a meeting with Gertrude Lawrence, and at this meeting, he had the the actress playing Tupped him, 
Doretta Morrow sing the entire score for Lawrence, including Lawrence's own songs. Lawrence listened calmly, but when she met with Rogers and Hammerstein the following day, she treated Rogers coldly, as she apparently felt the composer's actions by having another actress sing her songs was flaunting her vocal deficiencies. This friction between Rogers and Lawrence would continue throughout rehearsals. Lawrence's health caused her to miss several rehearsals, though no one knew what was wrong with her. When the tryout opened uh, in New Haven, Connecticut on February the 27th, 1951, the show was nearly four hours long. Uh. Yeah, Gertrude uh, Lawrence suffered from laryngitis and had to miss the dress rehearsal, but managed to make it through the first public performance, where she received mixed reviews. Producer Hayward came to the previews and after watching them suggested Rogers and Hammerstein should close the show now versus taking it any further. When the show moved to Boston for more tryouts, it was still running 45 minutes too long. Thus, a comedic scene with Anna waiting to speak with the king was cut, as was a song called Waiting, which was a trio for Anna, the king, and the, the Krellaholm, who was the king's prime minister. Another cut song was Now You Leave, a song for Lady Tiang, and the song Who Would Refuse, which was the only solo song for the, the Krellaholm. Due to this cut, Merv V, the original Chromium, left the show and was replaced by John Giuliano. While making cuts and watching tryouts, Roger and Hammerstein felt the first act was lacking something. Lawrence suggested that they should write a song for Anna and the children. It was Mary Martin, who was still starring in South Pacific, that suggested they adapt a cut song from South Pacific called Suddenly Lucky. Hammerstein wrote new lyrics for the melody and the resulting song became Getting to Know You. Getting to know you, getting to feel free and easy. When I am with you, getting to know what to say. Haven't you noticed? Suddenly I'm bright and breezy Because of all the beautiful and new things I'm learning about you day by day So Western People Funny and Hot and I Have Dreamed were also added in Boston. As trials continued in Boston, Lawrence felt shaken by her ongoing illness, rather cold response from critics, and Rogers' apparent displeasure with her singing. In response to all of this, she wrote a very kind and pleading message to Rogers that concluded with her saying the following. <clears throat> My only desire is to please you, but I am a very shy person and would rather crawl into a hole somewhere than face disapproval. I have not changed in any way but you have, in some manner, to the extent that you no longer seem the warm-hearted friend that you used to be, but rather a big businessman with much at stake, which seems to be all my fault. I have no wish to vocalize, but I have endeavored to improve and repair a fault simply because I wanted to be worthy of your music. And it has been saddening to watch you walk away during rehearsals even as late as Tuesday afternoon when the new arrangement came for the song Lovers. You don't even seem interested. I will work until I drop in my tracks, but a kind word is worth more than all the glowing and gushing from others. 
Please be my chum again, and let's dispel the idea of a feud between us. Oh, flash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she wrote that letter to him. We don't know what Roger's response to her was. Mm-hmm. But after this letter came, there was a marked improvement in their relationship. And in a subsequent letter from Lawrence to Roger, she said, thank you for his sweet letter. So. Right. Well. So clearly something happened there. Yeah. I think so, they were just missing each other. I think so. I mean, I mean, Roger and Hammerstein weren't just writing the show. They were pr- producers. They were, they were being businessmen. Like they had to be. Yeah, like this was their name, their project. This was their. They, this is their were, money and yeah. their artists, and money is yeah. important to artists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and two million dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. Or yeah, a lot of money. Or, yeah, yeah, or two hundred fifty thousand in their time, two million today. Like yeah, a lot of money that they had. Oh, a lot of money. Yeah, riding on this show. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, so the show then moved to Broadway and opened on March 29th, 1951 at the St. James Theater. The cast included Gertrude Lawrence as Anna, Yul Brenner as the King, Dorothy Senaroff as Lady Tiang, Larry Douglas as Lunta, Dorette Morrow as Tup Tim, and John Giuliano as Perlholm. Notably, Margaret Landon, the author of the book that inspired the musical, was not invited to opening night for hmm. some reason. Don't know why. The show received rave reviews, with both Lawrence and Brenner receiving glowing comments from, from critics. Right. Lawrence felt so bolstered by these reviews that she told Rogers and Hammerstein she planned to play Anna not only on Broadway, but in the West End and ultimately in the film version that, that was to be made. The show went on to win five Tony Awards for Best Musical, Best Set and Costume Design for Mulitzer and Sheriff, and Best Actress for Lawrence and Best Supporting Actor for Brenner. Don't forget, the role of Anna was the primary role. The king was a supporting character in the original version. Yeah, I guess so. Brenner's the one that made the king the, king. the lead character. So after their big win and all that stuff, Roger and Hamilton took a break in their partnership to pursue individual ventures. Huh. But the shows continued to run along, but there were issues that arose. So Brenner would occasionally and sporadically skip his big number of puzzlement. There are times I almost think I am not sure of what I absolutely know. Very often find confusion in conclusion I concluded long ago. In my head are many facts that as a student I have studied to procure. I had on many facts of which I wish I was more certain. I was sure. Is a puzzlement. When he felt tired or unwell. This issue became such a problem for the stage manager that they suggested to Roger and Hammerstein that they should send on Brenner's understudy to shame him. By the end of his original Broadway run, Brenner had skipped the number approximately 116 times. Oh my God, what a diva. <laughs> right? Hey, my estimation's gone down now. You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like it tonight. Yeah. Apparently he would just walk off stage and the next scene would have to happen. <laughs> like he and McShane stopping the show. 
Hello, everyone. I'm Ian McShane. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm Yul Brenner. I don't feel like this song tonight. I'm out. <laughs> gonna go have a, I'm going to go have a martini and come back for act two. Yeah. <laughs> so while that was going on, Lawrence continued in her run, but her condition was weakening without clear reasons. In the summer, Lawrence found it hard to bear the heat in the theater while wearing her heavy dresses and leading the three-hour-plus show. So her understudy, Constance Carpenter, began to replace her in matinees. But then her condition improved, and Lawrence returned to the full schedule once the fall hit. But by Christmas, she was battling pleurisy and suffering from exhaustion. She entered the hospital for a full week of tests, but still the cause was not detected. In February 1952, bronchitis took her out of the show for another week, and her husband, Richard Ulrich, asked Roger and Hammerson if they would consider closing the show for Easter week to give her a chance to fully recover. They denied his request, but agreed to replace her with the original Ado Annie from Oklahoma, Celeste Holm, for six weeks during the summer. All during this time, Lawrence's performance was deteriorating due to her unexplained illness. This lackluster performance prompted audiences to become hostile and they began writing Rogers and Hammerstein informing them of their displeasure in her performance. Rogers and Hammerstein prepared a letter, never delivered it though, advising Lawrence that eight times a week you're losing the respect of 1,500 people and that she should bow out of her contract early. On mm. August 16, 1952, she fainted following a matinee performance and was admitted to the New York Presbyterian Hospital. She was first diagnosed with hepatitis, but Lawrence had a feeling that there was something worse going on and that she wasn't going to be leaving the hospital. She then instructed her agent, Fanny Holtzman, who had gotten her the role in King and I, to ensure that her understudy, Connie Carpenter, took on the part. Uh, she waited long enough for her chance to lead a show and that Brenner get hit star billing as he had earned that spot above the marquee. Lawrence slipped into a coma and died on September 6th, 1952, at the age of 54. Her autopsy revealed that her cause of death was from undiagnosed liver cancer. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On, on the day of her funeral, the performance uh, of The King and I was canceled. The lights on, of Broadway and the West End were dim because of her death. And she was buried in the ball gown she wore during Act Two. Oh. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, she was the first person for whom the house lights were dim. Yeah. I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Following Lawrence's death, the show continued to run with Alfred Drake replacing Brenner for three months in 1952. Probably when he, probably when he went off and did the last Ten Commandments. I would uh, assume. The last the Ten Commandments, yeah. Yeah. The show closed on March the 20th. 1954, after 1,246 performances, making it at the time the fourth longest ever running Broadway musical. Mm -hmm. All right, the story continues though. The original London production opened on October 8th, 1953, at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane and was warmly received by critics and audiences. It ran for 946 performances. The first revival, King and I, in New York, was presented by the New York City Center. Light Opera Company in April and May of 1956 for three weeks. 
Another revival was mounted in 1964, and the London revival happened in 1973, and notably featured Sally Ann Howes, who plays Truly Scrumptious in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, as Anna. And then, this is where we get bigger. Didn't she just die? He did just die. That's right. So then, 1976, Brenner received an offer to reprise his role as the king in a U.S. national tour and Broadway revival. On opening night, Brenner suffered so badly from laryngitis that he lip-synced with his son, Rock, singing and speaking the role from the orchestra pit. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. The, the, the run lasted 696 performances, <laughs> almost two years, and notably featured Angela Lansbury as a three-week replacement for Anna. Hmm, interesting. The tour was extended in 1979 after the New York run, still starring Yul Brenner. The production then opened in the West End at the London Palladium on June the 12th, 1979, and was reported to have the largest advanced sales in English history. Brenner took only a few months off after the London run ended before he returned to the road in early 1981 in an extended U.S. tour of the same production, which eventually ended on Broadway. On September 13, 1983, in Los Angeles, Brenner celebrated his 4,000th yeah, performance as the king. On the same day, he privately was diagnosed with an inoperable lung cancer. Mm. And the tour was shut down for a few months while he received painful radiation therapy to shrink the tumor. The production reached um, New York City in January 1985 in running for 191 performances at the Broadway Theater with Brenner starring as the King, Mary Beth Peel as Anna, and the part of Eliza was played by the Lee by Brenner's fourth wife, Kathy Lee Brenner. By this point, Brenner could no longer sing a puzzlement, and the newspapers were told this in advance that it was due to throat and ear that, that, that it was due to a throat and ear infection but that he projected bursting vitality to the top of the balcony. Brenner, at this point, received a special Tony Award for his performance of the king. Brenner's performance as the king had become the dominant part of the musical, to such an extent that Peel, who played Anna, was merely nominated for Best Featured Actress in a Musical versus Lead Actress. So see, the roles switched. Mm. Where it used to be Brenner that was supporting, now it's Anna that's supporting. The last performance for Brenner was, was on a special Sunday night show on June 30th, 1985. This brought his total number of performances as the king to 4,625. Crazy. crazy. That's like Topo playing Tevia for like decades. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Yeah. Can you imagine playing the same part 4,000 times? No. <laughs> you got to find I a would, lot of ways to I keep would, it interesting. I'd probably skip a puzzlement 20, 200 times if that were my deal. Be like, <laughs> mm, eh, I'm not into it tonight. <laughs> Cut another mm, 10 minutes yeah. off this show. Yeah. <laughs> Already really long. That March of the Siamese Children takes, uh, I don't know. 20 minutes. Really so. A long time. Yeah. 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 So Brenner died less than four months after his final performance on October the 10th, 1985. 
Next major revival came in 1996 with Donna Murphy starring as Anna, and she won the Tony Award for her performance, and Lou Diamond Phillips played the king. This production was ultimately nominated for eight Tony Awards and one for Best Revival, and, and Murphy won for Best Lead Actress. And the revival ran on Broadway for a total of 780 performances. In May 2000, a London revival was mounted starring Elaine Page as Anna and Scott and, J- and Jason Scott Lee as the king. I think I saw that. Yeah, you were there in London around that time, 2000. I, I think I saw that. Or I was supposed to see it. The show closed on January the 5th, 2002. A fourth Broadway revival began previous on March the 12th and opened on April the 16th, 2015 at the Vivian Beaumont Theater. The production starred Kelly O'Hara as Anna, Ken Watanabe as the king in his American stage debut, and featured Ruthie Ann Mills as Lady Tiang. The production was nominated for nine Tony Awards, winning four, including Best Revival of a Musical, Best Lead Actress for O'Hara, and Best Featured Actress for Mills. Marin Maisie was a replacement Anna in this production. I believe it's, I think it's her last Broadway credit was this. She did some off-Broadway stuff before she passed. All right. The production was reproduced at the London Palladium from June through September of, of 2018 with O'Hara, Watanabe, and Mills reprising their roles. Mm-hmm. This musical was adapted into a film in 1956 with Brenner recreating his role as the king, starring opposite Deborah Kerr as That's Anna. Right. That's right. And it also featured Rita Moreno playing the part of Tupton. Notably, Marnie Nixon, who would go on to dub Natalie Wood in West Side Story, dubbed the singing voice of Deborah Carr's Anna. And Nixon and Carr actually worked very closely together so Nixon could match Deborah Carr's vocal pattern. The, the film was well-received and was hailed as the finest film adaptation of any of Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals. The film was nominated for nine Academy Awards and won five, including Best Actor for Brenner, with Kerr being nominated for Best Actress. Did this come out before Sound of Music? Yes, Sound of Music came out in the 60s. I was going to say, because let's be honest. Let's be honest, shall we? (laughs) Chris Plummer gives him a run for his money. Yes, well, I mean, they're all playing the same part of the uh, of the stern father but both incredibly charming yes actors but christopher Plummer's, i don't know sense of pain is just revelatory it is and his love his love for her Mm-hmm. dreamy it's dreamy you you need someone to look at you the way christopher Plummer Look at looks at julie andrews in that fucking gazebo when he looks at her and it's like he's a, a young man again looking at like the adoration i i can't we will get into that song we do sound of music mm-hmm. oh my mm-hmm. god yeah mm. so Thai officials uh, judged the film as offensive to their monarchy and officially banned both the film and the musical in 1956. It kind of infantilizes. It does. um, does. People of of Siam, which is, again, problematic. Yes, it is. 
Okay, last part is Rich uh, Animation Studios, Morgan Creek Productions, and Warner Brothers Pictures released a 1999 animated film adaptation of the musical. 1999? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's even more problematic. Yeah, except for using some of the songs and characters, the story is unrelated to the Rodgers and Hammerstein version. Geared towards children, the adaptation includes cuddly animals and a dragon. And that is my final note for production history. Wow. Hey, Autumn, we got to take a pause. A pause? A pause for applause? (laughs) Well, we do like our applause, Autumn. But we're actually taking a pause because we want to give a special moment and a shout out to one of our new partners. It's Stu over at the Sounds of Broadway radio station. So let's give a listen to Stu, who's got a great message for us. Take it away, Take it away, Stu. Stu! Where can you hear the best music from Off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage? The answer, soundsofbroadway.com, your 24-7 online Broadway music radio station. Listen to selections from well-known, popular, and more obscure musicals from the most diverse playlists anywhere. That's soundsofbroadway.com. Let's go on with the show. Thanks so much, Stu. Autumn, what do you say we get back to the episode? Let's do it. All right. On with the show. Da-da-da-da-da. Okay. All right, Autumn. Let's do this. Top three songs. What is your number one? Well, I disagree with you, old Brenner, and I think it should have been in every show. A puzzlement. That's my number two. There are times I almost think nobody's sure of what he absolutely knows. Everybody find confusion in conclusion. He concluded long ago. And it puzzled me to learn that though a man may be in doubt of what he knows, very quickly will he fight, he'll fight to prove that what he does not know is so. Oh, oh. sometimes I think that people going mad. Sometimes I think that people not so bad But no matter what I think I must go on living life As leader of my kingdom I must go forth Be father to my children And husband to each wife Etc, etc, and so forth Yes, Autumn, you go first Why Mm -hmm. did it make your number one spot? Because he's trying Mm -hmm. We actually get we, We dismantle this idea of type Mm-hmm. And we get to see him in struggle. And it kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of the song from Camelot. Yes. Where, you know, or the soliloquy. Mm-hmm. Like Rodgers and Hammerstein, I know Camelot is not them, but it was a time when men had these huge egos, conundrums, mm-hmm. and they voiced them through music. Yeah. And it was don't great. that today. Yeah. No, you don't. So I really, I just like that he's struggling with the traditional, mm-hmm. yet he, as a king, was, like, uh, found found notoriety for, for trying to westernize and trying to adapt, right? Mm-hmm. 
So like, how far do you go with that adaptation of a culture? Mm -hmm. And should we all bend to the most powerful nation and adopt how they, you know, what is the perception of power and how do we adapt to be more like them? And should we adapt and should Mm -hmm. that be expected of us? And he is running a nation under siege because yeah, the French, he's saying everyone around Cambodia. Yeah. Well, he's saying everyone around him be some, you know, subjected to colonization and you know taking over and what happens when someone is colonized is their their identity gets taken away Mm -hmm. so that's a huge struggle for him so i say Mm -hmm. because it actually allows this character to have texture Mm -hmm. so yule god bless you out there you should have done every night because Mm -hmm. It really makes this character more sympathetic and more, mm-hmm. you know, we we see him in in constant conflict with mm-hmm. himself, his past and his future. Yeah, I mean, for me, I really this this is this almost maybe my number, but I have one other spot in number one. So, yeah, so this song, it really does humanize the king like. Rajinson could have very easily made this a stereo, a bad stereotype Asian character. But they don't. Throughout this entire piece, this is a character who is struggling, who has real conflict, and has real dilemma that he's trying to work through. And yes, there are lines, yes, the way he's written can sometimes be played as very comedic. But I also go, what Rajinson, once again, what they give this character is one of the most complex songs in the entire show. And because no other song hits this deep level of the struggle that he's going through. Like, like he starts the song where, where he says, when I was a boy, world was better spot. What was so was so, what was not was not. Now I am a man. World have changed a lot. Some things nearly so, others nearly not. Like just that first opening line and the maturity that that character has to look and reflect on that is it's huge. Conflict. It's conflict. It's conflict. That's a deeply rich conflict. It is. And what is what is interesting is you know, thinking about our South Pacific episode, mm-hmm. Rogers and Hammerstein were saying things that no one else was saying at the time. Mm-hmm. And for that, we have to applaud them, whether or not it's dated now with our contemporary sensibilities, of course. Mm -hmm. But at that time, they were they were pushing the envelope big, huge, and they were they were allowing these people that we perceived as other to have voice and struggle and to be people, right? Feel developed people. Yeah, I mean, like this. This is one of my favorite verses, which is, "What to tell growing son? What, for instance, shall I say to him of woman? Shall I educate him on the ancient lines? Shall I tell him, as far as he is able, to respect his wives and to love his concubines? Shall I tell him everybody is like the other, and the better of the two is really ne- uh, uh, neither?" If I tell him this, I think he won't believe it. And I nearly think I don't believe it either. Like just, once again, just this 
puzzlement. This it's it's Hamlet. It's Shakespeare. The fact that they yes wrote, to be or not to be, and the fact that they really wrote in these big oh sometimes I do 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 like the fact that they really wrote in these Shakespearean O's mm-hmm. that gives the actors so much to dive into. It's like what are you saying with that O? Because you're changing tracks every time he says O. He's changing a thought. Like there's so much character work that can be done with this. Well, and it's like, it's like running from one side of the stage to the other. Literally, that's how they stay kind of snobby. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's it, he's he's in a conundrum. Yeah, a quagmire. He's befuddled, yeah. confused. Yeah. And I will say my last note about this is that this song shows why Hammerstein was a good teacher to Sondheim. Because this is a character-driven song. And Sondheim learned from this and built upon it. That basically you have the influence of, of Hammerstein shown here about and how what, and what Sondheim had learned from him. Yeah, no, I think it's a brilliant song. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One more final thing. Mm-hmm. Hammer uh, Rogers even rhythmically reflects the speed of the king's thoughts. Like once again, just as Shakespeare has the built-in I am a pentameter, Rogers has given the actor exactly how the thought of the king because the 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 rhythm changes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's really fast. Sometimes it's slow and pensive. Like just the the combo of Rogers and this show there extreme ability so you know what i like i like that rogers and hammerstein lerner and low lionel yeah. Hart. they gave these people who were perceived villains in a way mm-hmm. these huge like i don't yeah. know what i'm doing like mm-hmm. i i'm flailing like the rest of you yes and watch me puzzle through this mm-hmm. The yeah. fact that it's called a puzzlement is also genius. Yeah. Because it's such an active verb. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do throughout this song? You're going to puzzle. You're going yeah. to search. You're going to inquire. You're going to uh, struggle. You're going to panic. You're going to pace. You're going to, yeah. you know, it's a puzzlement. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It is. Okay. So Summer- my... Yeah, that's your number one. My number two. My number one is Shall We Dance? Shall we dance? One, two, three, and. On a bright cloud of music, shall we fly? One, two, three, and. Shall we dance? One, two, three, and. Shall we then say goodnight and mean goodbye? One, two, three, and. Or a chance. When the last little star has leaved the sky. Shall we still be together with our arms around each other? And shall you be my new romance? On the clear understanding that this kind of thing can... Shall we dance? Shall we dance? Shall we dance? Oh, really? Yes. This song is iconic, and I can hum it instantly. Like... I know that song so well. And it's a moment that I'm excited to watch every time I get to the soundtrack or see the, or see a recording of it. Like this mm-hmm. moment is so wholesome. There is nothing overtly sexual about it. But when the king takes Anna by the waist and simply says, come and takes her hand, 
it's just it just explodes this tension that they have with each other explodes and then they just and then the music crescendos and you just get whipped around the room in this polka is not the romantic of the two of us yes this is the song you chose as your number one i'm very surprised yes i mean i also love how the song encapsulates their entire relationship uh between the anna and the king where the song starts with anna remembering a moment of her youth in, at a british ball so removed from siam and then the next section of the song is anna having to teach the king how to polka which represents their kind of back and forth troubling relationship where they're not quite meeting up and then they and then then they kind of come together where they do a, a mini polka and the king goes no, no no something's off it's not exactly what i saw the british do which reflects how he was trying to modernize and, and be ready for the british yeah yeah be, and be ready for the british visit and then they come together for that final moment of the proper polka that they do around them, which is their big come together moment mm-hmm. So you get a full circle picture of their relationship in one song. It basically summarizes the whole show. And it's done in such a beautiful way that as an audience, you just want it to keep going. You just want them to keep dancing. You don't want it to, to stop. Every time they stop it to get to bring a top to I'm like, God damn it. Like, can we not just have like another verse of Like it's just so gorgeous and it just is it's full like hearing that full orchestra when they do it it's just oh you're, you're you just soar on that music it's beautiful mm. so that's why it's my number one the minute we did king and i as uh, on our list i was like okay this is my first pick easily all right well <laughs> clearly autumn's not not liking this song well that's fine it's fine What don't you like about it? I don't know. It's just there. Everyone's made it popular. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) There's even a Richard Greer movie named after that song. Yeah, I know. Problem. Yeah. Problematic. Terrible movie. Yeah, not great. Where he learns Mm -hmm. to ballroom dance. With with Jennifer Lopez? I think so. Jenna. I think it's J-Lo who teaches him to dance. And it was filmed in um, Manitoba? Some... So, some small Canadian town they filmed it in. Becoming worse. <laughs> there we go. So, Autumn, what's your number two? We Kiss in the Shadows. Alone in the secret Together we sigh For one smiling day
that song didn't make my other list, but I have another one of their songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, We Kiss in the Shadows, it's not my favorite. It's it's a love song. It is a love song, but it's a, it's a, it speaks to every couple that has ever been othered. True. That they have to hide their love. I can hear gay couples singing this. Mm-hmm. I can hear inter interracial couples singing yeah, this at absolutely. different points in history. I didn't think um, about it that way, but yeah, yeah you're right. They, that they have to hide mm-hmm. their affection for one another. And how fucking awful is that? It is. You know, it's funny. I've been listening to the prom lately because I love that musical, but the unruly heart is the kind of same thing. Like this is our coming out. And, yeah. you know, these two are never granted a coming out and they're no. never granted their love. In fact, in, you know, they're burned at the stake. In- well, in the movie version, 46 version, they're burned at the stake. And this one, he but dies it's off stage and she dies somewhere else. Before but I think they're I think they're burned in the stake in the book. Yeah, they're burned on the stake in the book too. So the book was kind of based on Anna Lee and Owen's uh yeah. Owen's biography. Recountings. Yeah. But, but yeah, I'm, no, it's a tragic so thing. Yeah, like we've we've entered a, a different time. Yes. When we don't I mean certain places still execute. Mm-hmm. You, but our human rights have kind of gone up a little bit since then. A little bit, so it's interesting. It it's is. Interesting. It, it is. But yeah, no, this and is a really that, beautiful love song. It's far more complex than their other one that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Um, they get yes, in act two. Mm-hmm. This one, this one is very character specific, which I appreciate, and it, and it, and there is a sense of danger to it. Like you're like you're yeah. you on your seat the whole time going. Who's Are coming? they going to get caught? And the fact that we find out later that Lady Tiang knows this has been going on the whole time and hasn't stepped in yet, that she's just been waiting and holding on to this information mm-hmm. and hasn't said anything because she wants to protect the king and his ego is interesting. Yeah. It's very easy to play her as a villainess, you know? Yeah, no, she definitely is not a villainess. She's a victim of circumstance. Yeah, she well, is the head wife. The yes, head yes. wife. Yeah. What the fuck kind of title is that? The head wife. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of Lady Tiang, do you want to know what my third choice is? Yeah. Western people funny. Western people funny. Western people funny. Western people funny. Too funny to be true. They think they save a Okay. I, I like this song because it's a fascinating song. It's always cut from recordings, except for the most recent revival recording with Kelly O'Hara. They never include it on, on the track list. Like it's not on the original track list. It's not in the Ben Kingsley, Julie Andrews uh, symphonic recording that was done. It's not part of the other, like, it's not part of the film soundtrack either. But I like this song because it's the melody is very simple and hubbable. Do 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 do
but it distracts the audience from what Hammerstein's really saying. It's hard-hitting lyrics where basically he's being very honest and critical about how the Western views of the East and how they try and force the East to comply with the West. Like, like, yeah, like Lady Tiang starts the song, to prove we're not barbarians, they dress us up like savages. To prove we're not barbarians, we have to wear a funny skirt. And then, and then she goes on to say, they feel so sentimental about the Oriental. They always try to turn us in, inside down and upside out. Mm. Then her last lines are, they think they civilize us whenever they advise us to learn to make the same mistakes they are making too. Like the fact that Hammerstein got that in there in the 50s and basically pointed out saying, hey, let's not do this. Doing this type of shit is bad and wrong. Mm-hmm. Enforcing our views on others is not the way to go about this. The point is to be more like Anna, who grows to accept the king for their differences while still finding common ground mm-hmm. with him. What a cool idea. Right? Exactly. But what is our common is- ground and how can we build a relationship mm-hmm. from that? That's a very, it's a very wise perspective, right? It is. And it's, it's interesting when you, when you, like, even with what's happening in our current political climate right now, yeah. how do we look at that situation and find, oh, the big word, empathy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We can't be so harsh. We cannot, we must be more open-minded and see what the systemic problems are before judging the singular being. Mm-hmm. Every yeah. singular being has a story. Every yes. one of us has a story. And there's reasons why we are the way we are. Yeah. Like King of Siam and mm-hmm. Lady Tiang. Lady Tiang, yeah. And my last note is I like how this message and this concept is even reflected in the costuming for this moment, which mm. has Lady Tiang wearing a corset top, but then she's wearing an Eastern style skirt because she goes, hoop skirt too cumbersome. Can't do my work. Like, so, but the fact that like you have Top, western top eastern bottom in that collision of the two fashions well, and they don't wear undergarments yes like, that is true the, that's the famous scene right like there's yes. oh they are savages right yeah and no they just don't subscribe to the objectification that you like yeah. it's interesting if you look at it from a feminist perspective right mm-hmm. Yeah, we can say, oh, he has a million wives and mm-hmm. he's polyamorous and concubines and okay, but the Western person comes over and puts them in corsets and basically entraps them mm-hmm. for their own for their own um gaze. Yeah. So yeah. why are we just judging mm-hmm. the people who we view as other? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, I, mean, yes. I mean there's a whole verse about that in the song, which is Lady Tiang sing, to bruise and pinch our little toes. Our feet are cramped in leather shoes. They break if we had brittle toes, but now they only hurt. Mm. So once again, Hammerstein, like, just that, he was so smart with what he was saying. Was smart, but look at his prodigy. Like, look mm-hmm. at... Sondheim. Look at that cycle of learning. And then Sondheim yeah. passed it on to Jason Robert Brown, who was yes. also so acutely aware and things like parade mm-hmm. of, of what was happening in the world around him. 
that cycle of learning, that getting mm-hmm. to know you. Yeah. Passed down. Mm-hmm. And we just need audiences that are better listeners. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Okay, Autumn, let's get into the three songs you either would skip. Oh, no, you didn't get to my third song. Oh, well, sorry, what is your third song? You're going to be very surprised. Okay, I'm ready. It is The Dance, the Uncle Tom Cabin Dance. That made my cut list number one. Your Majesty, I beg to put before you one who is not happy. The slave, Eliza. For Eliza, for Eliza, for unfortunate slave. Eliza's lord and master, King Simon of Legree. She hates her lord and master and fears him. Now, listen, there's a very specific reason why, because I was, I was going to put on my cut list too. Mm -hmm. And then I started reading about it again, because it's been a while, right? It's been a while (laughs) since I was 13 doing Uncle Tom. And this is not a narcissistic thing. Oh, yeah, I was great. (laughs) Um, But it is a total commentary on racism, colonialism, and Tuptim has a silent, like, this is her revolution within, it is. within her own circumstance mm-hmm. and saying, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Yes. Harry, the, Uncle Tom's Cabin as a thing now through our 21st century gaze is problematic. She was a white woman writing about this experience. What, why should it have been her voice? Wasn't there someone mm-hmm. else? But at that time, no, again, it harkens back to our conversation about Aaron's and Flaherty writing Once on this Island mm-hmm. and Ragtime. Mm-hmm. It's what made people stop and listen. Mm-hmm. For an important writer to go, here is this. Now let the real voices in. Is huge. And and the original Uncle Tom's Cabin, whether we want to admit it or not, was probably one of the, the leading instigators of the Civil War. Harriet Beecher Store was a leading abolitionist. Mm-hmm. She believed in, in the equal rights for all people. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, this was... And this was Roger and Hammerstein choosing very wisely. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they don't choose things. They're very smart, as we've just discussed yeah. with yeah. Lady Chang's song. And this was the, the Simon Lecree. She's basically saying that the king is Simon Lecree. Yeah, like thematically, and, there's she, a lot of ties. She should not be, she says, my lord and master. Mm-hmm. So she, that subservience mm-hmm. is, is paired with this. Mm-hmm. performance yeah. for for the British. But yeah, for me, Uncle Tom made my other list. This is something where I just go, it goes on for so bloody long. And I'm like, just get me back to Anna and the King's story. Like, this isn't the story of Tup Timit and like anti-slavery. Where, uh, but it's like, important because Anna was teaching Tup Tim 
And Anna herself is a feminist and she is true. Right. So she's, she is also an, someone who fights for those who have suffered injustice. True. Well, this Good whole point. musical is right. Yes. So in a way it's kind of a summation. It's kind of a play within a play that kind of goes, this is told the same story told in a different way. It is. It is. I just go, it goes on for so long and I just go, yes. The it's, dancing it's dated. The- yeah. Yeah. The, da- the dance, the dancing is very dated. The fact that a lot of times the black characters are putting these really ridiculous masks that are very kind of inappropriate. The whole that show I- is inappropriate then. If we're looking at it in that lens, are we not? Is the whole show not inappropriate then? Well, it depends on how you direct the rest of the show. Usually, well, Uncle Tom's Cabin is meant to be performative. So it's already a heightened performance within a performance. But it's like, performative with reason. Mm, like, it's to prove a point. It's overtly there to prove a point True. to the king that he is Simon the Great. Yes. Yes. I don't know. For me, I just went other list. <laughs> this was this is the first one that went on the other list. I'm just like, oh. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I can remember very vividly it's funny how this lined up, but in our class with Marlies, uh, Twit, Theater World in Transition, that week, or sorry, the week before, uh, we had just done Uncle Tom's Cabin, the play. So the fact that I'm watching Keegan all of a sudden, surprise, we're doing Uncle Tom's Cabin. I'm like, what the heck? But it makes total sense that Rogers and Hammerstein would find this thematic tie between these What was the people. nugget in which they based the play on? Mm-hmm. the musical, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how can we wrap this around this? Mm-hmm. This little nugget. Yeah. So, but yeah, for me, it's not one of my favorite tracks. I often just skip. Uh, but for me, my number one is uh, Something Wonderful. Lady Tiang's other big solo of the show. We will not always say what you would have him say but now and then he'll say Because for me, I go, this is just like the song that also made my cut list back when we did Carousel. What's the use of wondering? Where it feels like Rogers and Hammerstein are justifying the abusive behavior of these men in power because they go, yes, he can treat you badly. But then on occasion, they'll surprise you with some kind treatment and do something wonderful. And, and that totally like negates all the bad behavior before that. And the fact that the song is sung by Lady Tiang, who, while being in an elevated position of head wife, she is still someone who is subservient to the king and Anna because she calls her Mr. Anna. And she says, why do you call me Mr. Anna? And she goes, it's because you're learned. You are educated. You're, uh, uh, it's, it's a calling you professor. 
that you are above me in in this in this line of succession. Yeah, I hate and it. Fact- I, hate, I hate when people call me professor. I'm like, oh no, 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 Miss Smith. I'm like, no, even worse. Call me Autumn. <laughs> right, but it's it's the fact that she has to go and sing this song to Anna to convince her to go and to go to the king and advise him. Because she because Anna goes, why don't you just go talk to him and advise him? She goes, oh, I can't do that. Which and then she goes, well, but then she sings the song about yeah, but then she sings the song all about being subservient and taking the good things, even though there's a lot of bad shit too. And I mean, I get that in any marriage there can be tough times and not somebody not persons aren't always wonderful hundred percent of the time. But because this is a person who was deemed second class or lesser than and not equal to their partner, it's most right. And that yeah, and that's my thing of. This song, along with something, what's these one? I'm like, Rogers and Hammerstein. Why do we keep going back to this bloody message? But what are you trying it's to say? It's important because they're making a point by keep putting the song in here. Mm-hmm. They keep shining a light on the fact that the women to this day, women are not given the same respect as men to this day, where we have come so far. Women are second class citizens. I don't care how rich you are, how famous you are. I don't care if you're Beyonce or Jennifer Lopez or Oprah Winfrey. (coughs) You are still a second class citizen. You know how I know that? Because there's never been a female president of the United States of America. In fact, there's not been very many female president or prime ministers in this world and if they've had to do it they have had to become more manly look at margaret thatcher i was about to say yes in a way i just defended margaret thatcher because she had to fight harder than any man who came before her for her Mm. place to be solidified yeah bless her heart that is a very complicated woman obviously she made some very bad decisions Mm. But she was also doing a lot of internal fighting with herself. So um, this is this is them acknowledging that it is they a woman has to keep doing a certain type of thing. They have to turn their blind eye to when their husband yells or slaps them or just wants to have sex and they don't. Or, you know, it's. We need more women songs like this, because you know what? It's still happening. I know that just from, and we breed it in young men and there's no consequence for it. These songs are indicative of bullying. It's like, as long as he needs me, right? Yeah, but like, as long as he needs me, there's there. a bit more to that song. Yeah, there is. It's far less justification. But they're, they're all justifying in their own way. He's sure. some kind of wonderful, right? He's, you know, what's the use of wondering if he's good or if he's mm-hmm. bad or, you know? he's my fella and I love him. They're justifying it to themselves. They're trying to convince themselves that they can endure mm-hmm. the trauma of being in this time and space with this person. Yeah. And we're still fucking doing it. We're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And that is that. That, mm-hmm. that to me doesn't make me put this song on my list. All right, well, it's it's on mine though. I just go. Oh. I didn't change your mind. No. Um, <laughs> I, mean, 
I mean, like, I get the, I, I absolutely get what you're saying, and that it should, and that this is still a problem. There are still women out there who, who probably sing something wonderful. I mean, the fact that they sang this at the Bloody Tony Awards in 2015 with with, Ke- with, Ke- with Kelly O'Hara and Ruthie Ann Mills, and she won the Tony for this performance because she does create a very human portrayal of Lady Tiang, who I, 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 who is not villainous, who openly weeps when, when this man dies because she does love him. I really do feel that in her she performance. There is She's a head wife. Yeah. Uh, like, again, like this mm-hmm. idea of ownership. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting, the Lord and Master song. this idea of ownership it goes into colonization who owns land who owns our bodies i will say i do like the my lord and master song because it's tough him saying screw the king and she says what like what has he seen something young soft and slim painted cheek tapered limb smiling lips all for him eyes that shine just for him so he thinks just for him though the man may be my lord and master though he may study me as hard as he can the smile beneath my smile he'll never see he'll never know i love another man he'll never know i love another man it's a defiant yeah. song that's what i like about that one even though it didn't make my top three that one i go everything top tim does is defiant it is she's push she's trying to shift the system from within yes love this character bravo mm-hmm. to her Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, Ottawa, See, what was on your cut list besides? Well, yeah, I mean, you said what's on your cut list. So I've already given two of them. I on. mean, I whistle a happy tune. I whistle a happy tune, and every single time, the happiness in the tune convinces me that I'm not afraid. Make believe your brain. Yeah, that's boring. Who cares? Who cares? So what? Well, whenever you're afraid, yeah, you're a young child, but it's like talking down to a child. Yeah, I, I guess so. Happy tune. Yeah, whatever. Who cares? Inconsequential. Don't need it. Cut it. Bye. Yeah. Next. Don't even need Lewis. I know he's there. Like we don't even need well, him. Well, Louis was well. Louis was always in the book, but originally he dies in a, in a horseback riding accident while in Siam. Yeah. He, he, he dies, but they cut his death. He kept him yeah. around. And I like Louis because him and the prince, Tuna Longcorn, have she has some great scenes together. They where do. They, where, where they where they actually do have a lot of where I mean they have a big argument because their parents are arguing. And the next moment is them apologizing, going, 
you know what? I'm sorry. I said what I said to you. Yeah, no, I know. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But I just, yeah, like, well, yeah, I like you because the representation of the next generation, the hope for the future. Yeah. Yeah. And Chuna Longhorn kind of does that too. With that and, I just, I, so like, I just don't think we need a chirpy song to sing to a child. I think oh, God, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what's the happy tune? is The happy kids song. Very little struggle. Boring. Yeah, yeah. My number three is one, I don't know if, if you'll have it, but it's I Have Dreamed. love duet for Tup Tim and Lumta. Yeah. It's boring and generic. It lacks the character specificity that the other songs have had in this. Like you could take the song I Have Dreamed and give it to Ado Annie and Will Parker. It can go sure. to what's her name? Uh Enoch Snow and what's her face? Carrie Pepperidge. Carrie Pepperidge. Like it's it's one of those kind of basic like I have dreamed that your arms are lovely. Da 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 do do do. Like, well, I, I guess it's a yearning song, and yes, it's two people who can't be together. So yes, there is that element, but really, it's I I much prefer "We Kiss in the Shadows." I think that's a much yeah. better song. Well, it's it makes more sense. Mm-hmm. It fits their characters better. Yeah, it has some specific yeah. intention. Exactly. Yeah. So, Anna, what else is on your for cut list? Um, I mean, a lot of it. <laughs> okay. Again, like Birdie, it's not my favorite musical. So it's certainly not my favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein. We all know what my favorite yes. Rodgers and Hammerstein is. It's Carousel. Yeah. yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> and my second favorite, we haven't done yet. So No, we haven't. It's Clue coming, in, though. everybody. Clue mm-hmm. in. No, I'm just apathetic. I don't really okay. have a least favorite. That's okay, what are yours? You got Uncle Tom. You have something wonderful. Something wonderful. And nice. I have dreamed. I have dreamed. Yeah. yeah. I agree with those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they don't really move anything forward. No. Something wonderful, I I do, I I think can be complicated. It and can be. Are, it can be like done it. correctly. And I, and I think that's why they had Ruthie Ann Mills on top of giving Kelly O'Hara time to do a quick change so she could get ready for her big Shall We Dance segment after Tony performance. But yeah. also, it's also showcasing what Ruthie Ann Mills did with that character and showing the humanity that she brought to that song yeah. and the complexity that she brought. So, and I can see why she won the Tony for it if you watch the brochure. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a thankless role. It's a very tough role to say. Any to any any role that says you are head wife. Well, what the fuck? <laughs> what does that mean, head wife? 
There's more than one. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Headwise. Headwise. Okay, Autumn, let's get into final thoughts. Does this musical civil place today? Should it be revived? Um, I don't know. If Miss Saigon isn't, I don't know if this should be. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. Like there is some serious Orientalism that happens in this piece because it was written. I don't think that if Rogers and Hammerstein were to write a musical day, there wouldn't be because they were very uh acutely aware of inclusivity and, and giving voice to perceived otherness. But as it is written and as it was written in 1951, and knowing that the audience doesn't think before they go into a theater, my answer is going to be no. I don't I don't think so. I think it is a museum piece. And I think uh, it's very hard to contemporize that and uh, contemporize this and give it, um, make it just today. I think it's, I think it's really hard. And even I think of me directing this and I think of asking BIPOC actors to do these roles. And I feel like that's insulting. Mm-hmm. So that's my indicator. And we should never have actors working just for the sake of working. We should have them working on pieces that share their experience with thoughtfulness and empathy. And I don't think this piece does that. Okay. I will say for me, mm. I absolutely agree. This, this piece is problematic. It does create problems. but. Uh, 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 what I do think is that the messages of what Roger and are trying to say are strong in their book that they gave this piece. Uh, and like what they did with West Side Story in one of its more recent revivals, where they brought in Lin-Manuel Miranda to rewrite the songs so they were in Spanish and in rewrote dialogue since so they were in Spanish. I think this piece needs a strong direction where you get the right people in place so that when they do do the ballet for for Uncle Thomas, or t- Cabinet of Uncle Thomas, the dancing is proper. You bring in a new orchestrator to properly orchestrate, so so, so it properly reflects Thai music. You you make sure that you're casting correctly, not white actors, not people, like not Puerto Rican actors, like they did back in the '50s versions where they would cast Puerto Rican people and dress them up to look uh, from Thailand, like. It has to be done deftly and correctly. The fact that the most recent revival cast Ken Watanabe to do the part, which is like casting Will Brenner. It's it's better than going for Alfred Drake or, or um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Rex Harrison. But I mean, for me, I think if you're going to redo it, and I mean, it's a very popular Roger and Hammerstein show. It's one of their most produced. I By people who shouldn't be producing it. <laughs> sure. Mm. I go... What we need to do is, we, is if you're going to do it, you need to go back and reevaluate things. You got to go back and go, okay, you got to get a proper choreographer who understands Thai culture to come in. So it's not Bollywood because that's Indian. You got proper Thai choreographer to come in and choreograph. You get a proper, you get a proper dramaturg who can historically research costumes so the outfits are appropriate. You also 
and then you I also say you you do some work on the book. You change some of the lines so they're so when they're speaking privately between the the two Longhorn and and um and, and the king or 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 on the chromalume and the king. Have those sp- spoken in Thai. Don't have them spoken in English because they wouldn't speak in that in that language. I think there are things you can do. It's just you have to do work on it. It's it's not going to be just an easy revival. But the book is nowhere near what West Side Story is. I mean, West Side Story has West Side Story is not this. West Side Story actually there's moments where you're like oh i get this i get the two unique perspectives Mm -hmm. they're not objects of otherness even though they are the sharks yeah but it was i think it was easier for kushner to adapt that you know the 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 language into this version Mm -hmm. king and i would need an overhaul like a complete and utter overhaul to fix the orientalism that is present in it. Fair. And if we took it out of the canon, no small theater would think that they could do it and do it improperly. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, yeah, I, I think, yeah, if you are going to revive it, you've got to do a lot of work now to make it work. It's definitely not an easy piece to just remount. Going you have to rewrite it. it. Yeah. You have like to I, yeah, like I would say out of all the canon, like Oklahoma, South Pacific, Carousel, Sound of Music, Cinderella, this is probably the piece that is most difficult. I, th- I think you'd have an easier time adapting South Pacific than doing this piece. I guess. I think they're both problematic. but They are. They absolutely are. But I think South Pacific would be easier to Sure. When you're looking at a piece and saying whether or not we should do it again, mm-hmm. the ninety nine point nine 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 to an inf- infinite number of people who are going to do the piece are going to do it wrong. True. Because they're not thinking. They're just like, it's a musical. I love the music. And they don't think about the consequences of yeah. what that is going to look like in production. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I could never do King and I. I couldn't do Ragtime. I couldn't even do songs for a new world up here because there are people who cannot play roles that are in those mm-hmm. pieces. Yes. I'm not going to do Once on this Island with all white children. Oh, God, no. People do it all the time. Well, see, yeah, I agree. That's wrong. And that's why they, everybody should follow in Hairspray's example where they've made it part of the, the rights for the show that if you're going to do it, you have to have. The proper cast in place. You can't just do it. But in that musical, those people get to reclaim voice. They get to own voice. True. In King and I, they do not. They are othered throughout the whole musical. Now, it was written in 1951. Mm -hmm. So that was them trying to bring new culture and things in. Lesson that they did that because it started Mm -hmm. conversations. But it's not the piece for today. Fair. That's not a good point. It's a museum piece. Yeah. Should it be studied? Should it be studied rigorously as a piece of theory, as a piece of text? 1000%. Mm -hmm. 
because it shows how Rogers and Hammerstein were revolutionizing the art form mm-hmm. and the way stories were told. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel about that. Love it. Love it. And on that note, Autumn, let's wrap up our latest installment in the Rogers and Hammerstein collection. Our next one's going to be a fun one. We're going back into the realm of fairy tales. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, we're not getting to the big favorite one yet. We got, we, we still have one more to get through next season. Okay. Autumn's already looking forward to it, I can tell. <laughs> okay. So, Autumn, audience members, thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. I know I've enjoyed this very in-depth conversation you've given. It's been great. It's been great. It's been great re-exploring this piece. Because, yeah, yeah, I don't think it should just be written off and No, I think it should be used to talk about it. To teach. Yeah. Getting to know you. Mm Mm-hmm. He yep. was trying to do some serious teaching with this piece. So let's use yep. it as a piece of educational material. Yeah, exactly. But in the meantime, everybody, where can people find you, Autumn Smith? Autumn DM Smith, all the platforms. Love it. You can find me at Littlewood Smith, Timber Beast Productions, Lesbianist. Love it. All the things, all the times. <laughs> Perfect. You- uh, they can find me at Mackenzie Horner on all social media platforms. Follow my antics with a cup of hemlock where we do artist interviews, roundtable discussions, theater reviews, all types of good stuff. Also follow our fantastic theme music composer, Mr. Brody Weld, and his new album, Locust, found on Bandcamp, Apple Music, and all other listening platforms. Lots of good stuff there. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page where Autumn and I do all types of fun top 10 lists, theater discussions, movie musical commentaries. Heck, maybe we'll even come and do a commentary on the 56 or the 1999 cartoon version of The King and I. <laughs> no. Yeah. There we go, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to seeing you in our next episode. All right, everybody. Okay, Thank moment. you so much for tuning in. We will see you all next time on before the downbeat in musical podcasts in autumn, shall we dance? Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> On a bright cloud and always music, shall we fly? Bum, bum, shall bum. we dance? Bum, bum, bum. Thanks. Bye.